This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the homily of his inauguration in 2005, Pope Benedict XVI renewed his call for the path of beauty, the Via Pulcritudinis. It is this call, there is nothing more beautiful than to know Christ and to speak to others of our friendship with him, that also provides the preface for the concluding document of the Pontifical Council of Cultures Plenary Assembly issued the following year in 2006. Responding to the prevailing religious indifference, materialism and unbelief in early 21st century culture and to a society in which truth itself and ethics in particular are under threat, whether instrumentalized by ideologies, relativized so that objective truth becomes hard to discern or flattened so that the good is horizontalized into a merely social act. Pope Benedict XVI and the council proposed this way of beauty as a pathway of evangelization of cultures and dialogue with non-believers, leading to Christ, the way, the truth and the life. For Pope Benedict XVI, an accomplished amateur pianist, as well as a professional theologian, music appears to have been a particularly privileged pathway to God. Speaking in 2015, he asked, what in reality is music? From whence does it come? And to what does it tend? The first source, he suggests, is the experience of being seized by love, an experience which opens up a new dimension of being, a greatness and breadth of reality which impels expression through poetry, through song and through music. The second source is the experience of sadness, being touched by death, by pain and by the abysses of existence, which elicits a dimension of reality that again cannot be expressed through words alone. And the third is the encounter with the divine, which, like the experiences of love and death, is really part of what it is to be human, and which also demands new ways of expression. Ratzinger suggests that in reality, also the other two areas, love and death, also in the other two areas, love and death, the divine mystery touches us. And in this sense, it is being touched by God that on the whole constitutes the origin of music. Pope Benedict has claimed, moreover, that in no other cultural domain is there a music of a greatness equal to that born in the domain of Christian faith. And that this music, for me, for him, is a demonstration of the truth of Christianity. The beauty of Christian music for Ratzinger has been not just a pathway into the mystery of God revealed in Christ, but even a demonstration or evidence for that mystery after a Bach concert, he recollected that he and a Lutheran bishop both spontaneously remarked to each other, anyone who has heard this knows that the faith is true. And reflecting on the experience, he commented, the music had such an extraordinary force of reality that we realised no longer by deduction, but by the impact on our hearts, that it could not have originated from nothingness, but could only have come to be through the power of the truth that became real in the composer's inspiration. So in this talk, I want to reflect first, first on this pathway of 
Beauty, the Via Pulchritudinis, proposed by Pope Benedict XVI and the Pontifical Council of Culture, and you can read that online, I can give the reference, um, as a privileged pathway for today's secular culture, a culture apparently blind to the paths of truth and goodness. And then in that light, I shall reflect with you on the music of one preeminent Christian composer, uh, Mozart, suggesting that we take up Pope Benedict XVI's invitation to allow ourselves to be gripped, compelled and affected by the power of his music, to be open to a musical pathway of beauty that has on its horizon the profound truths and realities of love, <clears throat> of suffering and of the experience of God. So, first of all, a philosophical pathway of beauty and the beauty of creation. In St Thomas Aquinas's pithy formulation, Beauty is that which being seen gives delight, id quod visum placet. Here we can substitute, as I mentioned before, being seen with being heard or being understood, such that a piece of music or a mathematical proof, I had a wonderful conversation yesterday evening with Anna about the beauty of mathematics. Um, uh, a mathematical proof, as much as a painting, um, can give delight. What is key, though, is that it is the perception itself which causes delight, which pleases, and not an inference of what might follow from such perception. For those of us from St Andrews, we know about Fisher and Donaldson and their wonderful uh, uh, fudge donuts. I may not, not, not be St Andrews, but, you know, fudge donut uh, may give pleasure, Platchet may give pleasure, um, not because it is beautiful, um, but we know that in being eaten, it will give sensual delight or great sensual delight if it's a Fisher and Donaldson fudge donut. Um, but by contrast, beauty is disinterested. It is, in St. Augustine's language, to be enjoyed, free and not used. It is the disinterested one. We appreciate something as beautiful, a painting, a church, a piece of music, without needing to possess it, let alone eat it. The, per the perception of beauty is different in kind then to sensual delight, the pleasures of food, wine, sex, etc. Beauty involves our intellect and will, and the delight we experience is principally of the heart and mind. So St. Thomas famously outlines three philosophical conditions of beauty. He says three things are required for beauty. First, integrity or perfection. The things that are lessened are ugly by this very fact. Second, due proportion or harmony. And third, claritas, brilliance, splendor. The things that have a bright color are said to be beautiful. And these conditions for him apply equally to nature, the creative world, and to art. We naturally like to see something complete, perfect, with integrity or wholeness, whether it be a beautiful flower in full bloom, a beautiful face with perfect symmetry and without physical defaults, such as a missing eye, a squint nose, missing teeth, scarring, etc., or a beautiful mathematical proof where everything is clear and nothing is lacking. Aquinas' second condition is due proportion or harmony. And we might think of, a, um, as Father Michael Lang was discussing, a Romanesque or Gothic cathedral and the pleasure, the wonder we may feel in seeing these buildings in contrast um, to, say, the distaste that one might commonly feel at the ugliness of some 
purely utilitarian designs. And St. Thomas's third condition is claritas, clarity, brilliance, and splendor. The way that beauty reveals, shines forth reality itself in the perfection of its form. Um, you know, today, um, it's a beautiful day. What does it mean to say it's a beautiful day? Well, it's not cloudy, it's not foggy, it's clear. There's a blue, clear sky, there's clarity. A diamond is beautiful. Why do you spend so much money on a diamond um, uh, and not on a pebble? Um, it's beautiful because of its clarity. Michelangelo's David is beautiful because the form shines forth through the bronze. So St. Pope John Paul II called for a philosophical recovery of beauty as part of a wider recuperation of traditional or classical philosophy, a recuperation of the transcendentals of the true, the good and the beautiful, encouraging philosophers to explore more comprehensively the dimensions of the true, the good and the beautiful to which the word of God gives access. In the conviction that as much as truth and the good, beauty leads us to God, the first truth, supreme good and beauty itself. Where the truth regards being as intelligible, as knowable, and the good regards being as desirable, beauty tells forth reality in the perfection of its form. It attracts us or captures us with a ray capable of igniting marvel. While a materialist philosophy does not open onto the metaphysical, a false beauty entraps us within the phenomena of a closed world. By contrast, a true philosophy takes us beyond the phenomena to their foundation, from the visible to the invisible. And a true beauty similarly acts as a hook. It captures us, attracts us, revealing the depths of reality. So thus far, we've been talking about the natural perception of beauty in the world and in art. And just as a proper knowledge of creation of nature and the cosmos and its visible or sensible materiality can lead us to a knowledge of a taste of its invisible creators in Romans 1, 2023. So there is a philosophical pathway of beauty which can lead us to its source in God. In other words, we can see the vestiges of God's beauty and the beauty of creation. The very author of beauty has created them, the Book of Wisdom. The beauty of creation is, according to St. Augustine, a confessio, confession, and invites contemplation of beauty in its source, the creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it in The Way to Glory, created beauty provokes in us a longing to be united with, to receive into ourselves and to enter into that infinite beauty of which all created beauty is but a reflection. So, you know, as with the Thomistic approach to the good and the true, so a Thomistic approach to the beautiful is really wonderful because, you know, even in the smallest beauty, even in the smallest act of goodness, even in the smallest um, um, uh, participation in truth, we, we are believing that we are participating in some way in God, who's the source of those. That's a really wonderful way of living in the world. Um, but this approach does not lead to a distinctively Christian understanding of beauty, an understanding of beauty that derives from perceiving Christ, God's son, as the full revelation of beauty itself. It also then does not lead us to an understanding of the potential power of distinctively Christian art. So this is my next section, a theological pathway of beauty, Christ's revelation of himself as beauty. For the baptised Christian, it is the beauty of Christ as model and prototype of Christian holiness, which provides his or her 
foremost pathway of beauty. And as head of the church's mystical body, this beauty of Christ is shared in her members and in the holiness of their lives transformed by grace. It is thus that St. Thomas locates spiritual beauty in a person's conduct or actions being well proportioned with respect to the clarity, spiritual clarity of reason. And likewise, in his celebrated address at the Communion and Liberation um, 2002 Rimini meeting, the feeling of things, the contemplation of beauty, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger reflected, I have often affirmed my conviction that the true apology of Christian faith the most convincing demonstration of its truth against every denial are the saints and the beauty that the faith has generated. Today, for faith to grow, we must lead ourselves and the persons we meet to encounter the saints and to enter into contact with the beautiful. Following the lead of Hans Urs von Balthasar, Ratzinger not only prioritizes the beauty of faith, particularly for pastoral ministry, he also emphasizes that Christ in revealing himself as beauty fundamentally transformed beauty from within. Christ is the fairest of the children of men, but he also had no beauty, no majesty to draw our eyes, no grace to make us delight in him. The Greek aesthetic, which leads us to contact with the divine, but which remained inexpressible for it, receives a new depth and realism in Christ's passion. The one who is the beauty itself, let himself be slapped in the face, spat upon, crowned with thorns. Ratzinger invites us to contemplate here the Turin shroud. In his face that is so disfigured, there appears the genuine extreme beauty, the beauty of love that goes to the very end. The contemplation of Christ on the cross invites us to be wounded by a beauty and a love that goes beyond anything found in nature or creation. And we see this beauty reflected then in the lives of the saints as well. This wounding by beauty, though, has a moral dimension. While many people perceive Christianity as a submission to commandments made up of prohibitions and limits applied to personal liberty, Pope Benedict XVI emphasized that it's beautiful to be a Christian. This experience let us grow. The joy of being Christian is beauty. Christianity, in other words, orientates human freedom, gives it wings, direction, hope, and ideal. The saint for Benedict XVI is the one who is so fascinated by the beauty of God and by his perfect truth that he is progressively transformed by it. For this beauty and this truth, he is ready to renounce everything, even himself. Alongside the saints, as Father Michael has beautifully articulated this morning, the liturgy is a core witness of beauty and the source of conversion for many people in the history of Christianity. The beauty of the love of Christ comes to meet us each day, not only through the example of the saints, but more so through the holy liturgy, especially in the celebration of the Eucharist, where the mystery becomes present and it illuminates with meaning and beauty all our existence. This is the extraordinary means by which our Saviour, once dead and resurrected, shares his life with us, making us part of his body as living members and making us participate in his beauty. So now the beauty of the arts. So we've explored separately two pathways, philosophical and theological, natural and supernatural of beauty. And in turning now to the beauty of the arts, we could speak of art, which not informed by Christian revelation, nevertheless expresses natural beauty, 
with the capacity to evoke thereby the ineffable aspects of the mystery of God or to provoke interior emotion, arouse astonishment. However, in Christian life, liturgy and art, these two pathways, like two wings, can come together. The Christian artist can take inspiration also from the contemplation of Christ in the mystery of the incarnation and the redemption. And more deeply, the Christian artist participates in the beauty of Christ through grace. And this holiness, this grace, may overflow into his or her art. The works of art inspired by the Christian faith, paintings and mosaics, sculptures and architecture, poetic, literary, musical and theatrical works, film and dance, have enormous potential to enable participation in the great experience of faith. And this incredible spiritual patrimony of artistic treasures inspired by faith is now, via digital technologies, democratised, available to the greatest numbers of people. Uh, Father Michael Lang this morning was talking about Beato Angelico and a, and a realism which also opens up to the transcendent. Um, but I think it's one of those wonderful things that when uh, Beato Angelico um, painted those frescoes in San Marco in Florence, he painted each fresco just for one monk. You know, one of it would have just been for one person who would be able to contemplate on that for a whole lot of time, then maybe you move cell and you move to someone else. But now, you know, not only streams of tourists into Florence can go and see those paintings, but anyone can see those paintings at a click of a button on the web. In other words, now is the great opportunity for the pathway of beauty, a pathway of beauty now opened up to everyone. But there are many obstacles to an appreciation of this Christian art, despite its widespread availability. A common biblical illiteracy sterilizes the capacity for the comprehension of Christian art. Contemporary cultures filled with seductions which stem the instincts, pollutes the imagination, inhibits the spiritual faculties. Even Christian art is typically viewed through a secular frame by art criticism, which highlights only the aesthetic formal aspects of works without interest for the content which inspired such beauty and by materialist ideologies which sterilize art, stemming the living and life-giving stream of spiritual life and limiting it to the world of emotions. The clear directive proposed by Pope Benedict XVI the Pontifical Council of Culture is to free Christian art from the reductionist secular frame of the aesthete or formal art critic who bounds himself within a closed world materialism. So I quote, to reread the works of Christian art, small or great, musical or artistic, and put them back in their context while deepening their vital links with the life of the church, particularly the liturgy, is to let them speak again and help them transmit the message that inspired their creation. The via pulcritudinis in setting out the pathway of the arts leads to the veritas, the truth of the faith, Christ himself, become by the incarnation, the icon of the invisible God. While much of Western art, including explicitly Christian art, has become for many an idol, the council proposes restoring it as an icon that leads us to Christ and the beauty of God. Faced with widely spread atheist and ideological interpretations, the need is felt for a major work of theoretical reformulation 
of the teaching of sacred art based on authentic Christian vision. So, um, so I, I work in the School of Divinity, um, as James said yesterday, in, in the University of St. Andrews. And there we have, as part of my work that I do there, we have this Institute for Theology, Imagination and the Arts. Uh, and I've been privileged to collaborate, Professor there, part-time professor, is um, the Scottish Catholic composer, Sir James McMillan. Um, some of you will know his music. And, and over the last six years, we've been collaborating on a number of projects together, trying to bring theology and the arts back together. And prompted by uh, Macmillan's involvement, we started with classical music and Christian faith. And classical music is also one of my backgrounds, so that's what I'm talking about today. Um, and this involved a composer scheme linking up theologians and composers, a collaborative volume on the future of sacred music, and a range of public-facing engagements trying to put God back into conversation about classical music, um, where often he's conspicuously absent. Um, and so we did a number of things. I, I even read a, wrote a very polemical article, um, uh, classical music's divorce from God is one of the greatest failures of our times, which is terribly journalistic and exaggerated. But we were trying to sort of engage and prompt a reaction. Um, so James Macmillan's witness as a Catholic composer who speaks openly about his music springing from his faith and whose latest symphony is simply entitled Le Grand Inconnu, The Great Unknown, a symphony explicit about the Holy Spirit, inspired especially by the book by the Belgian Carmelite Father Wilfred Stinnison, The Holy Spirit, Fire of Divine Love. Um, his witness has been transformative, forcing otherwise secular critics to engage at least in some way with the role of his faith on his own music and prompting them to question the relationship between faith and music as a whole. A review of the first performance of the symphony beginning, for example, all symphonies were sacred once. Um, and most recently, Jason Millen has explored the relationship between faith and music in the lives of other composers in a groundbreaking series of programmes for BBC Radio 4, which confronts head on the secular frame which surrounds the presentation of most classical music. And thus far, he's considered Talis, Wagner, Elgar, Bernstein, Mozart, Mahler and Vaughan Williams. So in the remainder of my talk, I'm going to say a few things about Mozart as I contribute directly to that episode of Faith and Music. Um, and I hope that my serve as a taster and encourage you to explore, it's all available on BBC Sounds, uh, the journey of Faith and Music with Macmillan in your own time. So um, now I'm going to turn to Mozart. So, yes, yeah, so how does then... Um, an understanding of Mozart's faith affect our appreciation of his music. How might Mozart's music be a resource for Christians? Can we speak of God speaking through this little man? So, beloved by God. Mozart was baptised John Chrysostom Wolfgang Theophilus Mozart on the feast day of St John Chrysostom in 1756, although posthumously he has also, of course, become known by the name Amadeus, the Latin form of Theophilus, um, which may mean beloved of God or lover of God. Um, and I think we can say that Amadeus was beloved of God. From his infancy, Amadeus's father, Leopold, believed that his son's extraordinary musical talent was a special miraculous gift from God, and that it was his duty, his own Christian vocation, 
to foster, nurture and share this miracle with a sceptical world, Leopold wrote. If it is ever to be my duty to convince the world of this miracle, it is now when people are ridiculing whatever is called a miracle and denying all miracles. This is why they must be convinced. So although Amadeus was born into a very devout and pious Catholic family, his father, Leopold, was highly conscious of the elite thinkers of his day who were undermining, if not ridiculing, the bedrock of Christian faith and of the increasing deism and scepticism spreading in the European Enlightenment. Both Leopold and his son, later Amadeus, would single out the fashionable views of Voltaire, 1694 to 1778, for example, and Voltaire's withering critique of Catholic religious practice. Leopold exclaimed, was it not my great joy and tremendous victory for me to hear Voltairians say to me in amazement after hearing his son's music, for once in my life, I have seen a miracle. On Voltaire's death in 1778, Amadeus wrote to his father, the arch scoundrel Voltaire has finally kicked the bucket. I mean, I'm trans this isn't my translation, but it's not what he actually said, but I think it's quite a good translation anyway. Um, kick the bucket, the arch scoundrel Voltaire has finally kicked the bucket, okay. So for Leopold, uh, Mozart's prodigious gift of music was God's answer to the rationalists and the deists. It was truly something divine beyond merely human comprehension and which nonetheless struck the heart and mind of its listeners. So let's listen as a brief illustration to the opening of Mozart's very first string quartet in G major, the very first quartet he wrote um, when he was 14. Um, and I think it's very beautiful. The opening sounds perfect. If you listen to it, the first two bars sounds perfect in itself, complete in itself with the melody in the first violin and the harmony in the viola and the cello. But then in the third bar, you'll hear, as if from nowhere, this descant, an octave higher than the first violin, soaring above and then linking up with the first violin and the third. So you kind of, it's wonderful because you listen it and you kind of feel it's complete. You've got the whole quartet and then out of nowhere, you hear this descant. So I'm playing it. This is actually Amadeus Quartet. I love, I love this recording as well. So.
Yeah, I mean, I love, I love Mozart. I mean, um, I just think it's beautiful. In his very first quartet, you'd expect, you know, a quartet to play and everyone plays. And yet he sort of does this trick almost on the imagination. I, I, and it's amazing, you get some classical music, because some of you will know you have sort of typical forms, where some in an opening, you have an exposition, development, and recapitulation. And you get some composers, you know, like Vorjak sometimes, he just gets, he just sort of cuts and pastes, you know, you just sort of cut and paste from the expert. It's very mean to Vorjak, but some of his less good music. But that never happens with Mozart. So what's incredible, if you listen to Mozart, whenever you get a recapitulation, um, he'd always just add something more. You know, so the sort of oboes will come in in the symphony or something. It's just, it's just incredible music. Okay, so beloved of God, this extraordinary talent that he was given. Can we say that Mozart was a lover of God? Mozart's Christian faith. Some have read the Freemasonry Association late in his life and his apparently Masonic opera, The Magic Flute, as evidence of his own skepticism towards or even his renunciation of um, Catholicism. However, the papal ban on Freemasonry Association promulgated in Rome in 1738 was not yet in force in Austria, and many devout Catholics became Freemasons, including um, Mozart's own father, Leopold and Haydn, um, uh, and Mozart chose a lodge with deep Catholic traditions. It was not until 1884, almost a century after Mozart's death, that Pope Leo XIII, who launched, of course, the great Renaissance into mystic studies, great hero, Pope Leo XIII, uh, that Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Humanum Genus unequivocally condemned by automatic excommunication members of Masonic lodges. So it must be anachronistic when we look at Mozart. Thus, in Mozart's own lifetime, devout Catholic beliefs could and did go hand in hand with membership of a Masonic lodge, which is part of the culture. It is nonetheless true that in his early 20s, his father sent him letters which portray a certain anxiety that he might have been getting a little lax perhaps about confession and admonishing him that God must come first. From his hands we receive our temporal happiness and at the same time we must think of our eternal salvation. But is the tone of Leopold's letter really surprising given his son's age and circumstances? When we wouldn't expect a father with a 20-year-old you know, in Paris to be writing letters like that. Um, and is there any good reason to doubt the sincerity of his son's assurances in response. Mozart wrote back, Papa must not worry, for God is ever before my eyes. I realize his omnipotence and I fear his anger, but I also recognize his love, his compassion, and his tenderness towards his creatures. He will never forsake his own. Mozart's religious devotion is also clearly evidence evident from his letters written in the lead up to his marriage with Costanza in 1782. This is lovely. He writes, for a considerable time before we were married, we had always attended mass and gone to confession and taken communion together. And I found that I never prayed so fervently or confessed and took communion so devotedly as by her, Costanza's side. Mozart's vow to compose a mass if his engagement was successful, this was to be a C minor mass, was typical of his Catholic piety. Another example being his writing home enthusiastically from Rome about his devotions at the various pilgrimage sites. Mozart's religious devotion to the mass is evident, I think, in his celebrated Ave Verum, which he wrote for the Feast of the Corpus Christi in June 1791, just six months before his own death. Mozart does not express here a theology of the transubstantiation. He doesn't try to communicate theological concepts in music 
Instead, it seems to me, he seeks to express through music the very religious devotion he felt for the sacrament or even the very compassion of God for man in coming to meet him intimately in the Eucharist. In doing so, Mozart invites the listener to be struck by this religious emotion and devotion and by the beauty of this most central and awesome of Christian mysteries. So um, I've just thought we might listen to this. Um, and this is a very, this was just on Easter day, I think, a recording um, from King. So let um, me just play this. So this is his other there. <laughs> I think we can also say that um, the architecture passes on uh, Father Michael Lang's principles. It's got the verticality, the orientation <laughs> as well. Um, so, beloved by God, lover of God, 
um, the musical Christ, question mark. The Russian composer Tchaikovsky loved Mozart above all other composers. And in his musical tribute to Mozart, Mozartiana, he adopts this Ave Vera Motet for orchestra as its central movement, pleghiera, prayer. For Tchaikovsky to listen to Mozart was to be in the presence of divinity. But this was no distant deus divinity, but rather the Christ of the Gospels, he wrote. My relationship to Beethoven reminds me of what I felt in my childhood to the God Jehovah. Great veneration, but also fear. Christ, on the contrary, calls forth exclusively the feeling of love. He is God, but also man. He has suffered like ourselves. I love Mozart as the musical Christ. In terms of the philosophical and theological pathways of beauty which we sketched above, Mozart's music and his compositional genius might certainly strike us as a God-given, as God-given, as revealing and enabling us to participate in the beauty of God. But as our discussion of the Ave Verum suggests, there appears to be a real element of truth in Tchaikovsky's remark that Mozart is the musical Christ. In other words, that his music appears to pour out Christ's love into the world. Moreover, it appears that Mozart's music could not have been composed in the absence of the Catholic faith that nurtured it, in the absence of the love and grace of God. And this seems to be um, one of the implications of a famous scene in the film of Peter Schaffer's infamous Amadeus, a fictionalized it's very important that it is a fictionalized account of the relationship between Mozart and Salieri, which, however unfair to their historical counterparts, and it's extremely unfair to their historical counterparts, nonetheless explores an important mysterious reality, namely that God may choose for his instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, rather than an outwardly chaste and pious man, you scorn my attempts at virtue. Um, I'm just going to show a clip where Salieri is listening to the final act of Le Nozze di Figaro, the marriage of Figaro, in which the Count asks his wife for forgiveness in the face of his manifest infidelity. Um, the Countess having been forced into the indignity of being wooed by him while pretending to be someone else. And Salieri comments, I heard the music, but this is the key point. I think this is the interesting point. I heard the music of true forgiveness feeling the theater, conferring on all who sat there a perfect absolution. God was singing through this little man to all the world. And the point is, if Amadeus Mozart, if he hadn't experienced himself as a Catholic, God's true forgiveness in the sacraments, could he have written this music which expresses that forgiveness? Um, Passing bar. 
stopping there, which is a sort of awful thing to do, but then the film takes another take, which I don't like at all on that scene. <laughs> okay, so the last bit of Mozart, so Faith the Music. So even faced with a miracle, whether it be Christ's first miracle of turning water into wine in John's Gospel, the miracles of the saints, or even for Leopold Mozart, the miracle of his son Amadeus's music, we as humans remain free to be moved or to remain unmoved. We can see God at work in our world and in our humanity, but we can also reject the God who loves the world and loves us. And this, it seems to me, is the profound drama, the drama of faith at the heart of Lorenzo da Ponte's retelling of the story of Don Juan and Mozart's extraordinary musical rendition in the opera Don Giovanni. This opera may be performed as simply a trivial tale of unbridled sexual license and its punishment, Il Dissoluto Punito, the Libertine Punished, was the original title. Um, and, you know, I went to a performance at the, the Royal Opera House about six or seven years ago, and that was all that was there. You know, that's all that was there. But I think beyond this sensual materialism, sex, food, wealth, lies a much deeper drama that Ponte and Mozart dramatize the eruption of the supernatural, of a miracle into Don Giovanni's worldly materialism and skepticism and his stubborn, or for atheists perhaps strangely heroic, resistance to the grace and mercy of God. In other words, the opera is really about the drama of Christian faith. The drama comes to its height in the finale of the opera's second act. Don Giovanni is enjoying a great feast when a terrifying knock is heard at the door. It is the statue of the Commendatore, the father of one of the many women Don Giovanni had raped and whose grave Don Giovanni had mocked. Coming back from the dead, as promised, the Commendatore, despite Don Giovanni's extravagant sins, nonetheless, and this is just in the Ponte and Mozart's telling, offers him one last chance at repentance. Uh, the, the, the operas are about forgiveness, inviting him to dine with him in heaven. He says, Don Giovanni a cena te come in Don Giovanni, I'm just going to play it. Um, it's a wonderful moment. A te, a te, it's just wonderful. So Don Giovanni first responds. How does he respond? He says, I would never have believed it. It's about belief. But then despite the presence of this visible miracle, I'm going to show it in the Joseph Losey production because it's very beautiful because it's not just sort of silly comedy. You could imagine this being a vision or something like that, or like in that Shakespeare's Richard III, you know, on the eve of the battle, his conscience comes to visit him, but he still rejects it. So there's a sense of, you know, how does God come to us? But anyway, but he then rejects it. Despite the presence of this visible miracle and despite his servant's awareness that my son, my Lord, we're all dead. Siamo tutti morti. Oh, love it. He holds his impenitent resolve to the end and is damned for eternity. We're not going to get the full drama <coughs> as if we're at the opera house. But anyway, we can at least hear this bit. This is a wonderful, from wonderful production by Joseph Lowe. Uh, <laughs> 
wouldn't have believed it. I'll do what you ask. Bring out another meal. We're all dead. It's also about the Eucharist. You know, we don't eat of um, of human flesh in heaven. Celestial food. because it's just amazing. But um, I, I've, I've actually got a, um, a friend who's a very good director and I, I've been trying to persuade him, you know, once he eventually does Don Giovanni to make the whole opera about the Catholic faith and to have sort of Catholicism there and kind of the world, the secular world, but, but he's not going to. They, typically the stage productions are very boring today of this opera. So um, Mozart's music is not just about the mystery of God incarnate. It appears to embody Christ, his love, his forgiveness, his beauty in sound, drawing listeners into the mystery and the beauty of God. Although one of the tragedies of Mozart's early death at 35 was that he was unable to take up the appointment as musical director at St. Stephen's, where he might have been able to write more church music. Mozart wanted to write much, much more music for the church, but he was unable to do so because the then Emperor Joseph II had put strict um, measures on what music can be composed. And only if you were for one of the great cathedrals could you write sort of um, lots of masses. So this would have been Mozart's chance to then write lots of sacred music. And he wrote about wanting to be able to do that. So it's a great tragedy that we haven't got that corpus of sacred music, which we might otherwise have. And things like his requiem or the motets or the mass are just little indications of what might have been. Um, but I think all his music, whether instrumental or programmatic, can become, as we've seen, a musical pathway of beauty to God for us. And indeed, because he couldn't write some of that religious music, I think he puts that religious fervor into his more programmatic works and also into his operas seen in that light. So to conclude, we began by reflecting on Ratzinger's comment that there are three principal origins or founts for music. The experience of being seized by love, the experience of sadness, being touched by death, by pain and by the abysses of existence and the encounter with the divine. However, our own culture, also in its compositional performance and listening habits, might seem to bracket out deliberately the realities of death and suffering, so often hidden from view, the mystery of love so commonly trivialized 
and the reality of God so blithely denied. And in classical music, the post-war zeitgeist of our conservatories and universities, uh, and I went to music school, so it's kind of my own experience, was that music is complete in itself and that everything else is extraneous and irrelevant. The recording industry has placed ever more great emphasis on musicians' technical prowess and on a perfectionism in sound quality, historically informed performance, hip, it's called, has prioritized musical style over its substance with the adoption of period instruments, pitch and performances practices. And under these influences, Mozart's music, but also classical music as a whole, can become just another cultural commodity, the concert hall, a museum of well-known and well-known pieces, and the listener, a mere seeker, of aesthetic pleasure, however refined. In the face of secular atheist and formalist ideologies and approaches, we may need today, therefore, to be highly intentional in reclaiming as Christians the world of the arts, in defending and appreciating art as icon, not idol, and in learning again to discover in the great spiritual patrimony of Christian art a true pathway of beauty to God. In refinding in Christian art this pathway to God, we need not be concerned that for others it may be appreciated narrowly as a refined pleasure. After all, while the Bible is for Christians the transformative word of God, which can pierce the heart and invite conversion, for others it is merely a human construct, a part, albeit a very significant part, of world literature. What we must resist, I think, is giving up on beauty, giving up on art, or giving art over to the secular world, or allowing the secular frame to restrict our own experience of its beauty and its capacity to draw us into closer and more intimate union with Uh, Juan, I think you, you were first, Father Juan. Yeah. Father Jean, sorry. Thank you. Um, you mentioned Amadeus as the lover of God. Yeah. Went into some detail on, on his personal life. And also, uh, in the, I suppose, allegory of the film Amadeus on, on the, the um, kind of life side of Mozart. I think this, also, this might pose a question as to what is the relationship between the work of art and the author, the creator of that art. Um, whether, if we are speaking of this via Pulcudumis to lead us towards God, uh, are these, should, should we, so what is the relationship between, if, if the author, the creator, is, is not necessarily of, of, a, of, a, of an exemplary life, for example. Um, I mean, the philosopher have this argument on Nietzsche, for example, no one can be extricated his, his work and his, his uh, uh, anti-Semitism and Nazi, for example. Mm. So. Should we have the same discussion when we speak about works of art and being cast towards God, or is is does it not really matter? Kind of a ex opera operata sort of thing. Uh, as we speak of the sacraments, we might speak of something similar in, in the case of, of beauty and, and things which lead us towards God. Yeah, I think this is a really um, important and interesting question. Um, I mean, in presenting. Mozart more is a beloved and lover of God. In a sense, I'm responding to the caricature that he's opposite. I mean, for example, in that film, uh, 
uh, the, the idea is that he's actually Don Giovanni himself and uh, the commentatory is actually Leopold, his father, who's the moralist. So it's kind of turning um, Mozart into a complete libertine. Um, and I don't think that's, that's true. Um, but nonetheless, as we know in the history of art, some of the greatest artists who produced the most wonderful religious art um, were terrible, typically men. Um, uh, and um, I think the broader question is, um, there was a question of the inspiration of the art. So even in Mozart's time, I think because that, that culture permeated society, it's like what you're living and breathing. You, you could be a very bad person, but still have encountered uh, the experience of forgiveness or the experience of love and then turned away from it, for example. And I'm just saying, I don't think that, say, some of the music that you hear and, and the way it strikes your heart, I think that's coming out of the experience of that faith. Um, and even for some of the, 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 the very terrible people, of course, they can be terribly sinners, but they can understand even better the forgiveness of God. And so sometimes you find that with, with some people. So I wouldn't want to be saying that you have to be a morally upright person in order to write good Christian art, because that's clearly not the case. But I do think it's about seeing where has this art come from? Has it come from in the ambit of a Christian culture? And, and that's the big, big argument, because a lot of people would say today, look, you say that this beautiful classical music has come out of Christianity. That's just a historical accident. It would still be that if there was not Christianity. But then you have to say, well, look, that's just a hypothesis. Right? It might have been the case, but it might not. And if you look what happened in classical music, say, at the, um, after the Second World War, when people explicitly, in the early 20th century, rejected God um, and the kind of music they wrote, it's awful. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you still have to kind of ask, um, I mean, people like Boulez and uh, Berio in Italy, you know, this is just complete nonsense music. I mean, it's not music, it's just kind of absolutely. So you have to say, well, what music has been born out of atheism? Um, Stockhausen, I mean... Uh, I mean, this is a bit flippant, but I, I think, do you see the point? I think there's a kind of sense of where, what's the ambit that, that gives rise to that, that beauty? Um, and I think one, one strong argument of Christian faith, and that's the point that Ratzke is making, is that it's no accident that in the ambience of um, Catholic faith, this wonderful art has come about. Yes, sorry. So I don't know your name, but... Kristen, hi, Kristen. Yeah. Yeah, I really like what you said about like the example of Juan Fresco being um, contemplated for like I guess just by one monk, and I think maybe you could kind of make the hypothesis that the modern, like kind of like drawing the distinction between the classical versus like the modern mind, and like classical being very like a, like almost obsessive and like focused, relentless in one one piece of art, maybe or just a few, versus like you said with the modernization of of art now. And I'm wondering if kind of like to maybe remedy this um, like this absence of faith in the discussions of art now, if we should be more focused and like relentless, almost to the expense of like closing our minds off. I think that's a really, really interesting point. I mean, again, uh, Father Michael Lang was talking, I think something Ratzke has talked a lot about himself is the saturation of the images. But it, that's something that we cope. It's both a, this great spiritual patrimony is available to everyone, but also one of the struggles for us today, isn't it, is there's just so much, where do you start? It's almost panic-inducing. Um, and um, I think this is really, and again, I mean, also, uh, Father Michael I was, um, Lang was talking about, and I hadn't thought about it in this context, but the kind of greyness and the monotony that you go to a different country and then you see your McDonald's and your Burger King, they've just built a Burger King in Cooper, which is my next door town. I'm so upset. <laughs> anyway, um, 
but it's because actually, and this is, I think it's, it's Father Michael Lang's point that, you know, Cooper has a, it's, it's a nice town. It's, it was the administrative center of Fife, the kingdom of Fife, this beautiful kingdom of Fife where I live. Um, and it's completely out of the character of that town. The people of, Fife, of, of this town did not want a Burger King. We don't have McDonald's. We, we don't want that. It's been imposed upon us and, you know, no, 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 I, I'm not. I, I, I realise that you know. That, sorry, that's terrible. No, I'm not. It's not. A, it's not an American thing. It's, it's just the chain of, of Burger King, um, um, and and I think that's this point. This sense of a localised art that you can love your art within your community um, is actually important. We, and maybe we need to, to 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 sort of think about that, and 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 that, and actually you need to focus and maybe come to love the art that just happens to be in your church. I mean, one of the things, you know, I lived in Italy for a bit, and of course, they are just, you know, blessed with all this incredible art, and it wasn't all destroyed as it was in the Reformation here. Um, but what's wonderful in Italy is you can go to a, a, a little village, you know, which is completely unknown. You go into a church and there's this amazing artwork, and just because it's not a Beato Angelico, it's just there, it's just sitting there. But it's incredible art. Um, and, we, and I think, again, it's this fetishization, even of, of sacred art has been turned into, the art critics have turned into gym and been given a value. And then the even just sort of good art, you know, can still be a really good object of veneration. So, so I don't know whether that's the thing, I, I, but I think it's a real issue that we have now. And, and, and what art should we choose to focus on? Maybe we need to just attend more just to one painting for a while and live with it and contemplate it, rather than just darting around over lots of images, yeah. Yes, at the, at the back, so I don't know. Yes, yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on the difference in appreciation of beauty between, say, a lay person who doesn't know how to write to music and um, someone who can compose classical music. Because the Salieri in, 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 the, in the film, the challenge is he can write to music, yeah. but cannot produce what Mozart can. Yeah. Now, I'm musically illiterate when it comes to writing anything, so I'm like, how how much greater is there a difference in appreciation of beauty from someone who can produce something that yeah. is beautiful yeah. versus someone who can only appreciate beauty? I mean, I think what's extraordinary though, isn't it, about certain music like Mozart is that um, even if you don't have musical appreciation, you, you can get a sense of the beauty or, you know, I, I can't draw at all or whatever, and, and yet I can see a beautiful uh, painting and I can be attracted to it. Um, Is it like the lion in the lion's skin? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you get to, you get some English critics say, well, it's like, you know, people who try and understand these things are like, uh, Empson famously said, it's, it's like you see a rose and, and the critics are like the people who try and pull it apart to find out what makes it beautiful. And, and so, um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to privilege, I think, I think what, what, when, when you um, know a craft, you know a skill, you can understand um, sometimes um, what's going on. You can understand the, the proportions or, you know, we've got an architectural historian here. So clearly when Rory's looking at um, uh, architecture, he can understand what's creating that beauty for us better and therefore be drawn into it more. Um, so I think there is very much actually this sense of the importance of a formation in beauty. And I think, again, that's part of what the... Um, emphasis on the path where beauty and pastoral ministry is important because it's saying to congregation it's not just about learning your creed or your our father or things 
it's actually part of the ministry of a priest or of lay people or of the church to teach people about beauty, to, to, to develop their spiritual faculties, because um, uh, actually it does take a certain degree of appreciation. Um, um, uh, yeah. I was just going to say, just on that, um, that, the implication with that is that somebody who's a specialist in morality is of necessity going to know more about beauty and forming people in beauty, and I think that's not necessarily the case at all in the ethical realm, and that, you know, understanding and appreciating beauty, like the artistic realm, they, yeah. they, they, they can come together, but they don't necessarily. Yes, that's right, and of course, you know, we have horrendous examples, um, particularly with classical music, um, of, uh, you know, Nazi commanders listening to uh, classical music. And then, so it's, um, uh, but I mean, there's uh, abusus non tollit usus, as, as quite say, you know, the abuse doesn't, you know, just because they used a knife and fork doesn't mean we stop using a knife and fork. And I think that's, um, um, you know, one of the big emphasis on this pathway of beauty, as I understand it, from the, the church is precisely that it, it ceases to be a part of beauty when it becomes mere aestheticism. So the whole point is that the beauty always has to be joined to the good and, and to the true. Um, that the beauty is drawing you to the good and the true. And when it becomes separated, when it becomes disenfranchised from the good and the true, that's when things go wrong. Um, so, so I think that, that, that that's really important. And, and I think, again, I mean, I find it very, Moving hearing these talks on on the liturgy, it's not it's not something I know much about at all. But um, uh, you know, you can see that that is a paradigm instance when it's done well of the beauty, truth, and goodness, the sacraments all coming together. And I think, in a sense, that's an aspiration then for for art as well. Uh, when it becomes separated off as just an aesthetic pleasure, and and then uh, ethics becomes just a case of. Uh, the choice between X and Y and whatever gives me more pleasure now, then you're in a different world. And, and the point about this isn't to get everyone becoming aesthetes, it's to get people to be going along the path of beauty as a path also leading to truth and, and goodness. Yes, James. Um, so we talk about sacred music and I've heard definitions of sacred being that which is set apart. Um, and so it's up to the responsibility of some, like the Christian, for example, uh, immediately the Christian, uh, knowing the implication of this music, do they do an injustice when they kind of just listen to it um, without kind of giving it the respect and reverence it has? I kind of think of a story I once heard of a priest asking a spirit, oh, can I uh, pray? Can I smoke while I pray? And his priest said, no, you, but you can pray while you smoke. You know, you, you draw yourself up some loose sort of things. Yeah, instead Was of... Was he a Jesuit? <laughs> <laughs> no, why was a Jesuit? was a Franciscan. Um, and so that sort of way of like, okay, we listen to maybe sacred music when we're uh, doing our studies. Does, but that can kind of... We're not really focusing on the music. We're just focusing on our studies. We just like the sounds. Is there any kind of injustice do you think we're doing there by not kind of appreciating it for its value? Because in some way, it's a kind of prayer, that sacred music that draws us to God. Yes, it's a, it's it's interesting. And I think, again, I mean, Father McAllen was talking about the, the origin of the sacred and sacred arch and architecture deriving from, from the liturgy. I mean, I think... Um, you know, because you also have the thing of sacred music being used in very secular contexts. I mean, one of the 
infamous recent examples. It's not a film I've watched, um, but Thomas Talence's Spearman Allium, which is this incredible piece for 40 voices, was used, I believe, as the soundtrack for Fifty Shades of Grey. So, um, <laughs> so um, that's clearly um, not what it was intended to be used for. Um, and I think that, that, but I think listening to Spearman Allium while doing your studies or something, I, I, I don't see a problem. A, a problem. Um, but I mean, it, I know, I mean, talking to James about this a lot, sorry, and talking to James McMillan about this a lot, um, you know, he personally doesn't like Muzak, the idea of music just as background and, and the kind of music that you get in restaurants and, and even when you go in to, to buy things, music which sort of gets you to buy things and things like that. Um, so because it's just part of an era of distraction, just having multiple yeah. things and not really attending to something. Um, but, uh, you know, personally, um, uh, I do that. I mean, I, I, I find. I mean, I find particularly say rock music is something I can just sort of have in the background sometimes when I'm working, and I just find it it provides a nice sort of space. Now that some of that music might have been, you know, written for uh, uh, church services, but I think it's. I mean, I think it's okay to to listen in other contexts. Um, but I suppose if you are, then there is a difference. I mean, there's a book by. Uh, Jonathan Arnold about this called Sacred Music in Secular Spaces and, and he was a member of the 16 so he'd sing both his sacred music in, in secular concerts but then he'd also si sing it in, in liturgical worship and he would say there's a big difference and I suppose that we can see that you know if you go to um, uh, to, to hear this music in that, in that spiritual context it's inviting you in an explicit way to participate in a um, a, a more spiritual existence. I mean, I, I remember, for example, hearing uh, a wonderful performance of Haydn's Seven Last Words of the Cross when I was in Rome at, um, what's the Basilica, not the St. Peter's, but the old, no, not St. Peter's, the main one, John, John Lateran, yeah. And it was there, and there weren't many of us there, it was sort of inviting, it was just amazing, and, and there was this cardinal who gave kind of reflections, and then they did it. So, Listening to the the seven words, seven last words on the cross, Haydn's music quartet in that context was clearly a very different experience than just having it on as background music. But I don't think there's anything wrong with having it on as background music as well. Uh, yes, sorry. Yeah. Yes, uh, I was wondering whether we have any sort of explicit reasons to privilege uh, art or or beauty in the form of from sight and hearing and at, over, for instance, taste. Uh, not just defending Fisher and Donaldson, yeah. but in general, could you not say that uh, there is artistic value and beauty appreciation through food and wine and this sort of criticism that art critics and wine critics do are, are, are actually very similar, even though they're using different senses uh, to appreciate beauty? Yes. Um, I think... Um, the, the distinction I was trying to make is the distinction in beauty as it being disinterested and it being the perception of the thing itself rather than um, the pleasure that follows from it. Um, I, there's two things I say here. First of all, I think absolutely Christianity and theology has to be involved with all the arts, whether it's the art of gardening or food or winemaking or um, clearly it's absolutely there. When we're talking specifically about beauty, I think it becomes a little bit more complex. Um, but I think, again, you can find beauty in those, uh, 
in says you say wine or art, you know, and particularly someone who really understands the wine is seeing the order, seeing the uh, the proportion of the wines, and, that, and that's different from just the sensible delight in in, in drinking it. I just wanted to point out the fact that as well we eat beauty that is Jesus in the Eucharist, mm. you know, the body and the blood. I, I just yeah. you know the fact that that is essentially food, but it's food for the soul. But it's yeah, all, it's like that's the hype about beauty. Yeah. Yes, Bernard. Uh, just uh, so beauty is like comparing something to a standard. You have a standard, and then you're trying to relate anything standard that and most of the time our environment dictates the standard like if you're talking about wine connoisseur like people who are experts in wine we all know that okay talking about wine is it italian wine or spanish wine or whatever so you tend to put whatever wine you're tasting and comparing it with the world famous wine but it, it depends on is actually why am I tasting it and like yeah. why the experts why say that shit? Yeah, I think, and this is the thing. I mean, there's a, I think this is where you're more moving into the realm of aesthetics, broadly speaking, because you're then talking about taste and very explicitly about taste. Whereas when when we when we're thinking about um, beauties, as we're, we're talking about something which isn't about the, the pleasure in the taste, it's not something. I mean, in a sense, you have to consume the wine to enjoy it. You don't just say, like, a, that's why I said Fisher and Donaldson, they, you don't say um, the cake is beautiful. You say it's good to taste. Um, but you might make the most beautiful wedding cake where it's just beautiful to enjoy and actually you don't want to eat it. Well, that could be a beautiful cake. But insofar as it's cake and being eaten, and it's been said, it's not the, the, the beauty. It's not part of the beauty in the sustenance it gives as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think then you're talking analogically. I think, you know, obviously you can start expanding the meaning of beauty, but I think what we're trying to do is, you know, hear a little bit of thinking, well, what's distinctive about the perception of beauty? Um, I, I just think we're confusing excellence with beauty as well. So you, you can get excellence in every field, but talking about beauty is it's an aesthetical experience. Yeah, or, yeah, I'm saying Consuelo. Oh, okay, well, so last question from Consuelo, just so we get a really difficult one. Um, I was listening to radio, no, classical FM on like a Sunday morning the other week. Yeah. And um, the people who lead it are very knowledgeable and they really nice. Music. I don't know very much, but I enjoy it. And I remember one, the man introduced kind of, I think on a Sunday morning, we have more religious music because it's a Sunday and we still have that instinct that it's a sacred day, but it was kind of like, if you if you want spiritual nourishment like here you go and i found that really almost like shocking and hurtful because it was just like it's almost become a replacement like that's where people find their religiosity and i guess this is more of a point but also a question of how can we prevent that abuse in the secular world because these people clearly have a um, uh, you know, a desire for what is true, good, and beautiful, and they find it in classical music. They know, they see the good of it. But the whole point is, is that it's rooted in God, who is so much better and bigger than any piece of classical music created by like a mortal being. So how can we kind of prevent that abuse? Because then it's just, it's just sad how much they're kind of missing out on. So this point, very briefly, 
that a lot of people, including secular and atheist people, still will talk about music in spiritual terms and, 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 and indeed it's marketed in that way. I actually see this as an opportunity um, because I think, and I'm, I'm just starting a research project, I'm the most spiritual of the arts looking at music and why it is that, that people approach that because I think that's where, and, and again, this is, a, you know, that art is a real bridge to the wider secular culture. And I think that the responsibility of Christians is then to show, well, why is it that you're finding that spiritual? Why is it you're having those experiences? Are they simply emotional experiences? Are they leading to something else? And then offer that pathway, you know, because they're, they're kind of meeting you halfway in the art and then show how it, it's going. And I think, again, that's where, the danger has been that typically that gets closed off. Um, uh, uh, and, 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 and again, whether it's Mozart, who you want to then turn into Don Giovanni and make him a secular libertine, or even Dante, you get certain critics who want to turn him into an atheist. You just think, well, come on. I mean, there are certain artists you could pick on who clearly were atheists and good but they're not. So I think part of that's where like, Christians particularly can enter into the culture and meet people, secular people, who are finding something spiritual and say, yes, there's a reason for that, because look where it's come from, look where it's going. Maybe even look at some of its intrinsic principles, which have um, a, a kind of divine order in them. End. Thank you very much.